We are in the Gospel of John. We're going to read chapter 5, 19 through 30, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Jesus revealed you perfectly to men. Thank you that you tell us these things, Father. Thank you that you tell us how Jesus ever lived to do your will how you and he are one, and what you've done that we might be with you. You and us, we and you, him and us. That great mystery, Father. I pray that as Tom shares the word today, you would move hearts to see Jesus more truly as he is, to see the revelation of the living God in him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Good morning. This is another of those astounding passages in the Gospel of John that tells us things about Jesus that uh, make it clear we're talking about somebody amazing. The Son of God, (laughs) the the idea that there are people in the world who think the Bible presents Jesus as a, a great teacher or a great prophet or just a really great guy. Uh, is is uh, very perplexing, <laughs> starting with the first line of this gospel, right? The passage we looked at last week ended with the Jewish authorities angered to the point of seeking all the more to put Jesus to death. And their reason for wanting to do that was not only because he was breaking the Sabbath by healing a man on the Sabbath, but because... He was calling God his own father, and they said that meant that he was making himself equal to God. Our passage this morning is the first part of Jesus' response to that accusation. And I'll give you a spoiler alert. It's not a defense. 
Jesus is presenting a demand for unconditional surrender. This is a declaration of the very essence of what every man, woman, and child must know and believe about Jesus so that he or she can escape the eternal judgment that Jesus alone will dispense and enter into the eternal life that Jesus alone gives. My top level outline point for this first part of the passage, verses 19 to 22, is like father, like son. Jesus is affirming, not denying, the truth of the Jews' accusation against him that he was calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. Every Jew in Jesus' day understood the significance of sonship. Being the son of your father was a big deal. Men in Israel didn't have uh, last names. The way you distinguish one Simon from another Simon was based on his father's name. So Peter, before Jesus changed his name, was Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of John. In the culture of that day, a son almost always shared not just his father's name, but his father's vocation. He did the same work that his father did. If his father was a fisherman, he was a fisherman. If his father was a shepherd, he was a shepherd. If his father was a carpenter, he was a carpenter. And at some point in his life, once his father became too old or infirm to continue his participation in the business, that son would fully take over the work that he had shared with his father. And that's not going to happen with the heavenly father. But the sharing part is very much in focus here. The firstborn son in each family received a double portion of all that belonged to the father when the father passed away. That also is not going to happen with the heavenly father. But when a man was the only son, the only son of his father, he received the entire estate. He received everything that his father possessed. The Bible speaks often of the inheritance and the heirship of Jesus. His possession of all that belongs to His Father. When Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working, the Jews understood what Jesus was talking about. They, they knew <laughs> what He was saying. Their problem is they didn't believe it. <laughs> Now, the, the first part of Jesus' affirmation here of His equality with His Father actually came in the first 18 verses of this chapter that we looked at last week. So I'm putting that one in parenthesis here. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. He said, My Father's working until now. I myself am working when He was challenged about healing on the Sabbath. So the first way in which Jesus declares Himself equal with His Father is that the Son works when the Father works. He keeps His Father's hours. <laughs> now the Jews would never have said that God was, was pro prohibited from working on the seventh day of each week. They recognized that God was the one who, who gave the law to Israel. He was not subject 
to the law. So they recognized that if Jesus really, really was the Son of God, then it would make sense for him to keep his father's hours and to be working on the Sabbath. They got what Jesus was saying. They just didn't believe it. And for someone to falsely claim to be the the one and only, the only begotten Son of the living God would be the height of blasphemy if he was not telling the truth, right? The sin of Satan was that Satan said, I will be like the Most High God. This is worse, right? If, If Jesus is not telling the truth. But this is the central assertion about Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, starting with the first sentence. Jesus is equal with God because Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is and always has been God and always will be God. That's exactly what He, Jesus, claims about Himself throughout this Gospel. In verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5, as we begin today's passage, Jesus makes a second claim about His unique participation in the ongoing work of His Father. Not only does He work when His Father works, but the work that He does is His Father's work. Jesus was the perfect man. He was the perfect fulfillment of God's design for mankind. And where do you find that that design? On the first page of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible in Genesis 1. God's design and intention for man was to be His image bearers and agents in His creation. To do His work, His way, in His creation. Mankind in general and every human being in specific flunked that assignment terribly. Always. But Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. He did only what His Father gave Him to do, intended for Him to do. He said only what His Father intended for Him to say. And when I was initially taking notes on verses 19 and 20, the first thing I wrote down was that Jesus perfectly submitted to His Father in all that He said and did. That's certainly accurate. But it leaves out an important facet of what Jesus actually says in verses 19 and 20. See, He doesn't merely say that He does only what His Father tells Him to do. He says that He does only what He sees His Father doing. Present tense. And then he says, whatever the Father does, the Son does also in like manner. So he does what his Father is doing and he does it his Father's way. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus did his Father's work not only in perfect submission to his Father, but together with his Father. It's not merely submission in a vacuum. It's collaboration between the Father and the Son. They are going about the same work. And by the way, if you listen through Jim Ellis's outstanding class on the Trinity, which is available on our website, one of the points he makes is about the inseparable operations 
within the Trinity. We'll see a lot about that later, like in John chapter 14 and 16 when Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit. And you see that He says the Spirit does this and then He he says He does the same thing. This whole principle is borne out further in the next verse. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all the things that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. Jesus was doing His Father's work together with His Father. He wasn't just a perfectly submitted servant of His Father. He was the beloved Son of His Father. He was a partner and co-worker with God the Father. Like Father, like Son. The Son works when the Father works. The Son's work is the Father's work. Now in verse 21, Jesus begins to get more specific about the nature of that work that He shares with His Father. He says in verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Now this isn't the first time in John's Gospel that Jesus is declared to be the source and giver of life. Listen once again to chapter 1, verse 4. In Him, that's in the one called the Word, Jesus, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now how long has that been true of Jesus, that He was life? Well, it's been true as long as all the other things that John chapter 1 declares about Him. It's been true since before the foundation of the world. Everything in the first four verses of that first chapter. Since eternity passed, Jesus always was, and He always is, and always will be the Lord of life. He has absolute authority over life. Together with His Father, Jesus has life in Himself, He says in verse 26. And here He says He gives life to whom He wishes. Jesus is the Lord of life, and in verse 22, He declares Himself to be the Lord of judgment. The second aspect of the Father's work that Jesus does is the work of judgment. But there's an added element in verse 22. Jesus indicates that 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 particular task isn't shared, at least not when it comes to the actual execution of the judgment. He does say, by the way, in verse 30, at the end of this passage, that He judges, He says, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So, He's still submitting to His Father in that judgment, but but the Father has handed the whole package over to Jesus. He's the one who does all the judging. Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, a little later, says, that the Father gave the Son authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Jesus is the one and only perfect man. He's the only man who never sinned. He's the only man who perfectly fulfills God's law because He fully shares God's character. It is to that one man that Jesus, that, that the Father has given all authority to judge mankind. Now the world loves to think of Jesus as a benign kind of a person, right? 
He's all about gentleness and kindness and mercy. He's way too loving to be judgmental. But what happens when you point those people to our Lord's own declaration to John the Apostle later in Revelation 19 that He, Jesus, will soon return to judge the whole earth. And when He does, He will fill a great valley up to the bridles of the horses with the blood of those whom He has slain using nothing more or less than His spoken word. What happens when you show those people in Revelation 20 that that same Jesus is one day going to call everyone who died in that valley and everyone from every age who has ever died in unbelief to come forth out of their graves and to stand before His great throne and He's going to cast every last one of them into the lake of fire forever. Everyone who has refused to believe in Him. What happens when you show people who consider Jesus a benign kind of guy those sorts of verses? They generally don't want to have anything to do with Him. But that's the real Jesus. The One who gives eternal life to whomever He, wish, he wishes <laughs> will eternally judge all the rest. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Now what does this demand of us, these things that, that Jesus has just declared to be true of Himself? In verse 23, He tells us what it demands of us. Of every person. God the Father has given all life and all judgment into the hands of His Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And in case we don't get the message, Jesus then says, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That verse is the central demand of this entire passage and of this entire chapter. And if you put it together with John's overarching purpose for this Gospel in John chapter 20, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name, this verse is the central demand of the whole Gospel. Because unless you honor the Son even as you honor the Father, then you don't have that life. And I wouldn't stop there. If the question is, what does God demand of human beings? John chapter 5, verse 23 could easily be said to be the central demand of the entire Bible. That every human being must honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The words even as, even as they honor the Father, refer both to how we honor Jesus and to how much we honor Jesus. We're called to honor Jesus in the same way that we honor the Father and every bit as fully as we honor the Father. What does it mean to honor someone? Well, the biblical word for honor is a word that means to assign appropriate value or worth. To honor the Son as we honor the Father means that we value the Son exactly as we value God the Father. 
Whatever praise we offer up to the Father is due to Jesus. Whatever trust we place in the Father, we must place in the Son. Whatever obedience we render to the Father, we must render also to the Son. The value that you see in Jesus Christ determines everything that matters about you in the eyes of God. If a man says that he worships the one true God, but he declares Jesus to be just a great prophet, or a really good teacher, or even a lesser God, Jesus declares that person's worship to be false. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus goes so far as to tell the Jews, the, the Jewish leadership, that their father is the devil. A Muslim who refuses to bow down before Jesus as the one and only Messiah, Savior, and God, as Muhammad's own creator and master, can insist all day long that he worships the one true God, but Jesus says he doesn't. Jesus says, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That Muslim's claim to be a worshiper of the one true God is a false claim. When a man who calls himself a Christian declares that people of faith are to be commended even if they do not believe in Jesus, just as long as they have faith, Jesus declares their worship and their faith to be a fraud. I call them chinos. Christians in name only. On the surface, the moral code that's embraced by certain other religions may seem to have a lot in common with what the Bible calls right and wrong. But any religion that does not acknowledge Jesus as both perfect God and perfect man is a false religion. And whatever it calls morality doesn't impress God at all. Other monotheistic religions may appear to share our conviction that there is one eternal, infinite, personal Creator God to whom all men are accountable. But if the followers of those religions do not honor Jesus as that one eternal, infinite, personal Creator God, then nothing that we have in common with them matters at all in the eyes of God. By rejecting God's own Son, Jesus says they have rejected God. There is lost and dead as lost and dead gets. Even if they are supervising all the activity at the temple of Yahweh. They must repent of their self-made religion and fall on their knees before the God of the universe who took on our humanity to bear the penalty for our sin that we could never pay so that all who believe in Him alone may have eternal life. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we have to start every conversation with every unbeliever with the declaration that Jesus is God. But we must understand that our witness for Christ is woefully incomplete until we have proclaimed the Son of God 
to be God the Son. With some people, you may get to that part of your presentation of the Gospel very early. The Spirit, with others, the Spirit may move you to take a good while to introduce a person to Jesus as the perfect man before you start talking about the fact that He is the perfect God. And of course, you personally might never get to that point with a certain individual because you may only have one conversation with him. That's fine. Tell him the truth about Jesus and then know that God is the Lord of the harvest. One man plants a seed, another waters, but who causes the growth? Just him. God's the only one that saves. But we need to be clear about this. Anyone who does not honor the Son even as He honors the Father is not a true worshiper of the one true God. And until He is, He is not saved. Now, again, I want to, I want to put one little clarification there, and that is that salvation is a process for a whole lot of people. Right? Kind of like physical birth is a process. So what's at stake here? That's where Jesus goes in verses 24 to 30. The short answer for what's at stake is that the one who by the grace of God gets this right has eternal life. And the one who gets this wrong remains in eternal judgment. John 5.24 is a very well-known verse. But I'm going to ask you to look at it this morning as if you've never seen it before. Can you try, try to do that with me? It's exceedingly important that we understand verse 24 in light of all that Jesus just declared about Himself. The verse says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that means this is true. <laughs> he who hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. What did the person who says those words just declare to be true of himself? He said He is the Lord of life and He is the Lord of judgment. He has absolute authority to give eternal life to whomever He wishes and to dispense eternal judgment to whomever He wishes. Now in verse 24, that person tells us very clearly and very plainly who it is that receives eternal life and who it is that receives instead eternal judgment. Do you think that's something that we need to know? Jesus Christ gives eternal life by His declaration to those who hear His Word and believe the One who sent Him. That means we hear and receive His Word concerning Himself and we believe the testimony that His Father has borne concerning Him. And the nice thing about that is that those are both the same. This is the central promise of the Bible. 
This is the central promise of the Bible. It's not the only place you'll find it. It's restated many times in many different sentence structures. But it's the same promise. It's a promise we should be eager to proclaim to all humanity without qualification and without equivocation. And what that means is we're supposed to proclaim it, not mess with it. Whoever hears and believes the truth concerning Jesus Christ, the truth that both He and His Father have revealed, does not come into judgment, but is already crossed over. That's what the word past means. He is crossed over from one place to another. Crossed over out of eternal death into eternal life. That person does not come into judgment. He does not come into judgment. Did you get the part about the judgment? In John 3.18, Jesus told Nicodemus that whoever believes in Jesus Christ is not judged. And then He said, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, you start out judged. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that judgment is forever put away. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in Him alone as the one and only Savior, the one who paid the penalty for your sins, who gives you eternal life, then you're not waiting for judgment day so you can find out if you really have eternal life or if maybe you're actually really condemned. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your one and only Savior, you've already crossed over out of death into life. Guys, if we can't say that without qualifying it, killing it by the death of a thousand qualifications, then we're preaching the wrong Gospel. You've already, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you've already passed, crossed over from death into life. When your physical body dies, that's not even an interruption. It's just a change of scenery. This, this scenery, I mean. Eternal life is a relationship with the one true God and with Jesus Christ whom He sent. That's John 17.3. That's what eternal life is. If you believe Him, you've got it. In verse 25, Jesus says, An hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. That verse is saying that there's a crossing over from death to life that Jesus grants to men both now and later. I believe the now part of that is the same crossing over that He just promised in verse 24. I think He's continuing that thought. The soul of every man, woman, and child who hears the voice of Jesus and believes the Father's testimony concerning the Son crosses over from death and darkness into eternal life and brilliant, astonishing light right now. Every man whose soul has been reborn into that eternal life will also be resurrected later. His physical body will be raised and transformed from mortal to immortal, from corruptible to incorruptible, so that he, he will be perfectly outfitted to dwell in the presence of God 
forever. I believe Jesus is talking in this verse about what Revelation 20 refers to as the first resurrection. The resurrection that includes only believers. And I don't believe that's just one point in time. Revelation 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. See, the first death is physical death. The second death is hell. It's eternal separation from God. The second death has no power over those who were part of the first resurrection. In John 5.26, in our passage, Jesus restates His declaration that He's Lord of life. That He's the giver of life. He's the source of life. And I believe that, again, that ties with what He just said about the resurrection unto life that occurs both now and later for those who believe in Jesus. Then in verse 27... He restates His declaration that He's Lord of Judgment. And I believe that declaration is tied to what He's about to say in verses 28-30 through about another resurrection. A different resurrection. The coming resurrection of the dead from their tombs. Does Does He say anything about a resurrection now in those verses? No. He says an hour is coming, and this time he doesn't say, but now is, because the resurrection in those verses has no already component to it. It will not happen until Jesus comes back to judge. When that resurrection comes, all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth those who did the good to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. All who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come forth. I do not believe that that's got anything to do with the resurrection spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4 when believers who died physically will be raised together with believers who are still standing and all of them will be united with Christ. I believe this is talking about the second resurrection spoken of in Revelation 20. And you don't want to be part of that one. The only people who will be part of that resurrection will be those who died in unbelief, having never put their faith in Jesus. Verse 29 says that in that resurrection, those who did the good will come forth to a resurrection of life. Those who practice the evil will come forth to a resurrection of judgment. You say, well, if it's only for unbelievers, then who's got the life part? Well, I believe the point of that wording is that this is going to be a judgment based on deeds. This is going to be a judgment based on works. And it will determine the eternal destiny of every person who is resurrected to face that judgment. I believe that's the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. And no one who's part of that judgment will fall into the first category. They'll all fall into the second category. They'll all come out of the tombs and they will be raised to be judged according to their deeds, whether good or bad. And they will all fail. That's not a whole lot different, by the way, than when Paul 
in Romans 2 says, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they get eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and obey unrighteousness, to them, wrath. And you look at that and you say, wow, so some people are saved by doing good. But if you just keep reading, when you get to chapter 3, how many people are in the first category? He says, let me just read it real quick. If you're judged by your deeds, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. So how many people by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality? None. And so every mouth is closed and every man is accountable to God. And then how are people saved? Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way, guys. That's it. It's the only way that you will ever stand righteous and approved in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. I know that there are many very respected commentators and pastors who believe that, that the judgment there in verses 28 and 29 will include believers. And if they're right and I'm wrong, and that's very possible, then there's one thing I'm certain of the good that will result in eternal life is not good works. It's faith. And that's, that shouldn't be too big a surprise because in the next chapter when the multitudes who Jesus fed on one side of the lake come to the other side of the lake and they're asking for food again and He doesn't give them food and He says you should be working for the food that doesn't perish. And they say, okay, what must we do that we may work the works of God? And what does Jesus say? This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Beloved, I'm certain of this. No one who trusts in Jesus Christ will ever, ever face a judgment based on His works to determine whether He receives eternal life or eternal death. That will not happen. Because if you have trusted in Jesus Christ the day you trusted in Jesus Christ, you crossed over from death into eternal life and God doesn't take that back. You know why? Because you're a gift from the Father to the Son. Read John 6, verses 39 and 40. Everyone who... Jesus said, no one who comes to me, I will... Anyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. And the only way anyone comes to me is if the Father draws him. When God gives you to His Son... He didn't take you away from His Son. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand. You know what it means to stand in the grace of God? It means you're stuck in the grace of God. Jesus said, you're in my hand and I'm in my Father's hand and nobody can pluck you out. Now listen to a marvelous 
sermon that I highly recommend by an old Scottish preacher named Edward Donnelly. You can find it on sermonaudio.com. And he has six messages on assurance and and one of them is called the primary grounds of assurance. And he talks about the secondary grounds and he has a lot of great things to say about, about the evidences of the works that God produces in us, of the testimony of the Spirit in our hearts that we are indeed children of God. He, he has a lot to say about many evidences, our love for the brethren. But when he comes around to the primary grounds of assurance, you know what he says? He quotes another preacher and he says, if you ask me how I know that I am saved, and the first thing out of my mouth, the first two words out of my mouth are because I, then I've got it wrong. The first two words out of my, out of my mouth must be because God. This promise in John 5.24 tells me all I need to know to know that I am saved. Because if I believe that promise, if I believe that promise, God says I've crossed out of death into life. Some modern preachers insist that on the last day God will examine the works of every professing believer to see if those works demonstrate real saving faith. That God will look at your imperfect, incomplete, inconsistent works to determine if your faith was legit. And that will determine whether you get to spend eternity with Him or are consigned to hell forever. I'm sorry guys, but to me, that's just another dressed up version of salvation by works. And it's not the Gospel. I know there are people here who disagree with me and I love you. But to me, this is bedrock stuff. If your trust is not in Jesus Christ, then your works will absolutely determine your destiny and your destiny will be hell. But if your trust is in Jesus Christ, your works will never touch your righteous standing in the eyes of God. They will never have anything to do with your righteous standing in the eyes of God. There is a work that will. There is a work that has everything to do with your righteous standing in the eyes of God. Romans 5.18 is just one work. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. One act of the perfectly righteous Son of God. One glorious act of righteousness that makes every believer in Jesus Christ forever righteous in God's eyes. Having, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's not a temporary condition. That one act of righteousness was... Jesus' blameless blood poured out as the perfect ransom for your wretched soul if you're trusting in Him. The last words Jesus spoke at the cross as He gave up His last breath were, it is finished. What is finished? That one glorious saving work the only work that will ever have anything to do 
with your righteous standing in the eyes of God. Jesus did it. You can't. You never will. You need to stop trying and you need to put all your faith in Him because if there's any of it placed in you, you've got this wrong. I hear a lot of preachers talk about cheap grace and a watered-down gospel. And most of the time they're talking about not making enough of the importance of works as a proof of saving faith. You know what I believe cheapens grace and waters down the gospel? The surest way to cheapen a free gift that you did not deserve is to offer up proof to the giver that he made the right choice when he gave it to you. Any kind of proof. Anything about you. Anything at all about you is an insult to the one who poured out the most precious substance in this entire universe. His life's blood to buy you out of your abject slavery to death and darkness. Out of You were a, a sinner, an enemy, a helpless opponent to God. You were like Paul on the road, Saul on the road to Damascus looking for another Christian to arrest and take to Jerusalem to be killed. That's how God saw you. And when God brought you to faith in Jesus Christ, that's when you, you who thought that you could see, finally saw. That's when you who were dead came to life. Dear Father, may we truly honor the Son even as we honor You. And may we by the power of Your Spirit call all men to do the same. And Father, may our honor that we lift up to the Son of God recognize that He's the One who saved us and we had absolutely nothing to do with it. All the glory goes to Him now and forever. It is that it is our gratitude, Father, toward You. It is our astonishment that You would save the likes of us that moves us to desire with all our hearts to obey Him, to live for Him, to be useful to advance His kingdom on this earth until the day we stand before Him face to face. May everyone who has trusted in Him for salvation know with absolute certainty that that day is coming. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.